Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, Season 2, Episode 1. Our guest today is Per Byland. He is the author of the new book, How to Think About the Economy, A Primer. We discuss why economic freedom is important and how you can improve your economic literacy from the Austrian School of Economic perspective. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you want to continue the conversation after listening to the episode today, join us at chronicallyhuman.locals.com. Excellent. Well, um, I've got your book, How to Think About the Economy. Really enjoyed it. And I thought what we could do is start off real quick about you giving a quick bio um, to the folks out there about yourself and how you got started with uh, being a professor of economics. If you want to uh, start with that. Well, sure. Uh, that's not a short story, though, because I've been <laughs> a little bit all over the place. Um, but I mean, I've, I was born and raised in Sweden. Um, I got pushed over the edge for several different reasons in the mid-90s to become a libertarian. And through that, like so many others, I I learned about Austrian economics and realized pretty quickly that, whoa, that is how I reason about things, but not necessarily as advanced, of course, and, and, and not as structured either, but how I saw and viewed the free market, that's pretty much how Austrians view it as well. So I started reading into that. Um, I got into a PhD program in applied economics. Um, and well, from there on, a PhD program leads to a PhD. And then if you're lucky, you get a job. So I, I got a job as an adjunct first at University of Missouri, moved on to a couple of years to Baylor University. And then now I'm at Oklahoma State as associate professor. Well, fantastic. What brought you to the States? What made you leave Sweden? Well, I mean, several things. It was grad school. I mean, formally, the, the timing was just going to the U.S. for grad school. Um, but I always wanted to move to the U.S. anyway. So it was always sort of a, not necessarily a goal, but something that was a, a definitely a possibility in my plans for the future. Okay, gotcha. I, I have a friend from Sweden. He's a golfer, and he he talked about always dreaming about coming to America and playing golf because of the opportunity. It's just so much greater here than there is um, in Sweden. What's the population there in Sweden? It's about 10 million. 10 million. Okay, gotcha. I gotcha. What do you think about the current elections or the recent elections over in Sweden with the Christian Democrats? What's your view on um, on that? Well, I mean, I followed it pretty closely because it was so tight. And I mean, Sweden, it has eight eight parties in the parliament. Mm. Um, and of course, they, they bundle together into two blocks, more or less, one left and one right. But that has been sort of crumbling lately with uh, the Sweden Democrats, which is sort of a nationalist uh, variety of, of the Social Democratic Party, I suppose. All of Europe has, has those kinds of parties, but Sweden is sort of later. Um, and so the the blocks were completely different. The the sort of the the uh, dividing line was no longer between non-socialist and socialist, but in different places. So I it, it was very unclear what would happen or what the outcome would be, and it ended up with uh, the socialist side losing power with basically just one or two seats in parliament. Okay. <clears throat> And and they had, they had, the parliament is 349, uh, and they had 175, so they just had one, one vote more, um, and now, 
the uh, the non-socialist side has 176. So I mean, <laughs> it's 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 pretty close, um, but it's 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 uh, fun to see other people uh, running the show, I guess, in politics. And I was involved in politics for a while too, in back in the 90s. Uh, and so I know a lot of people in in the sort of conservative classical liberal party. So I know some of them personally, which is sort of fun. Now, I think that uh, a lot of people in the States have seen headlines about that, but I wasn't sure about how Swedish folks would feel about what's going on over there, especially with the migration and the problems it seems like at least being reported on this side about the crime, the elevated crime. Is there any truth to that or what? what's your take on that? Yeah, there seems to be. I mean, I live in the U.S. just like you, so okay, gotcha. it's not like I, <laughs> it's not like I, I see it uh, uh, in my neighborhood or anything like that. But I, you know, I follow Swedish news and I talk with friends and family and stuff like that. So yeah, there's. I mean, it's basically gang violence and okay. and gang crime has increased quite a bit. Uh, and I, I, I guess the uh, the whole uh, apparatus of justice or state justice, anyway, has sort of been, been slow to respond. So, and there's some some connection at least with immigration, and Sweden has seen a lot of immigration recently. Uh, so it, that was not really much of an issue in the election now because most of the parties all agreed on on reducing migration and 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 cutting back on crime. Of course, they they all want to cut back on crime, which is just a silly thing to discuss in politics, really. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, exactly. Of course, they, they they don't know how to do it either. So it it. It doesn't really matter, but it's, it's how you get votes, I guess. That is true. Yeah, I'm sorry for that diversion there, but uh, I thought it was interesting. It was timely, uh, what's going on here as well as over there. But your book is about economic literacy, and I think that's extremely important. And in your book, you talk about how economic literacy is really the antidote to, uh, to combating destructive policies. And how do you define eco economic literacy, and why do you think it's important, especially nowadays? Well, I think it's always been important, but it's it's more important today with with a, a sort of heavily regulatory or interventionist government, uh, where where the government can reach and can control, or at least attempt to control, uh, people's actions in a, in a different sense. I mean, back back in the day, yeah, you had an absolutist government in with a king and everything, but if you didn't live close to the castle what sort of influence did the king actually have except for taxation? There was not a whole lot. But today, interventionism is all over the place and it affects everyone every day, pretty much. <clears throat> so if you have destructive policy, then that's going to put a damper on economic growth and our standard of living and, and of course, on, on any type of, I mean, the pursuit of opportunity and the pursuit of happiness and all that sort of thing, too. So it's much more important today than it used to be and I fear that, well, I'm pretty sure too, that that people have less economic literacy than they used to. And and what I mean by economic literacy is, is simply that an, an ability to understand what is going on in the marketplace and how the economy actually functions on some pretty basic level in a sense, but we don't really have that for two reasons. One, one is that schooling and education fails completely if it even tries to to uh, uh, teach that sort of thing, I don't. I don't think it tries to teach that sort of thing, and and I'm not sure there are many teachers who actually are economically literate either. And and the other is simply that 
we're not exposed to the market much anymore. Uh, it used to be the case, I think, to a greater extent that, well, you you were a farmer or you had your trade and then you had to sell. You, you had direct connection with your customers. You had a direct connection with, with how they used the product. Uh, so you could immediately see uh, how your product could could be made of use by other people and you could respond and you sort of understand understood intuitively the way entrepreneurs do today supply and demand and things like that because uh, you, you knew you couldn't charge uh, any price and you knew you couldn't charge more than the other guy because then everybody would buy it from him and so forth right today most people they have a career in a, a huge corporation and they they spend their days warming up a cubicle that's pretty much their job uh, they have no connection whatsoever with the market or they live off of welfare payments or or kinds of subsidies and whatever else. So, so they're in, in all kinds of ways, we're sort of shielded in a sense from the market, which really just means from other people and their valuation of our work. So we're not even learning experientially unless we start our own business. And then it's a shock right there. How, how, how much power the consumer actually has over my business, right? Many start a business because they want to be their own manager and then, and their own boss, right? That's that's usually a driving force for a lot of people starting their own business. The first thing they realize, and the first thing that happens is a, is an awakening. Like, holy crap, I can't say anything at all about my business because all, everything I need to do is, is serve the customer, right? It, unless I serve the customer, everything is 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 worth nothing. So that's what I, I need to do. Customer is king. Uh, and, and that sort of uh, intuition or understanding on a basic level is simply not there. That is true. I like your point about the consumer is sovereign. And I think that's something that has been lost, especially with the more that the government gets involved with the redistribution of income, where it takes from those who actually produce and gives to somebody else to enjoy the benefit of where you do get a disconnect between um, earning something and then spending it. And there's a disconnect between risk and value that seems to be uh, you know, definitely happening in the market nowadays. What led you to write this book? I know you've written other books about entrepreneurship, and that's what your focus is, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, with, uh, with what you're teaching now. What led you to write a book which is basically Economics 101 from the Austrian perspective? Well, I mean, there, this sort of emerged in, in discussions with other people, but I, I, <clears throat> I as an as an Austrian and as a, as a professional academic, um, I get a lot of questions by, from people saying, "Okay, so what is this Austrian economics, and where do I start? What is, give give me like this one reference, this one book that I can read and, and understand what the heck they're talking about, that sort of thing, right?" And it was always difficult to figure out exactly what to recommend them to read. Because there, there are some, there's the classic, there's Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. And it's a, it's a great book. Um, it's a little tedious after a while because it, it really is one lesson. And it's just basically the lesson of the seen and the unseen, or if you will, opportunity cost. And it's every chapter is about that same thing. It's just applied on a different type of thing. And if it's, uh, policy and unemployment policy or whatever it is. I mean, all those chapters are about that one lesson. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so it's not comprehensive. It doesn't really cover all of economics or the whole economy. It's just this one 
I, I mean, in a sense, it, it is the core uh, lesson too. It's it's the, tr the basic trade-off, but there's so much more than that. So then the question is, okay, if you want sort of an overview, where do you go? Well, there are some introductions to Austrian economics written by by well-known Austrians, definitely more well-known than I am. Um, but some of them are published by academic publishing houses, which means they cost, I mean, $100 or more for a book. And if which someone says, oh, yeah, it is crazy. And, and, and if someone says, what can I go to learn a little more about this Austrian economics you're talking about? Then saying that here, buy this for $120. I mean, <laughs> that's just not doable, right? Even right. if it is a good one, it doesn't, doesn't matter. And then there are a bunch of bad ones, uh, or some some of these are, are sort of summaries of, of of a of a magnum opuses and or a big principle, big tomes really in in Austrian economics. So you have Bob Murphy's Choice is a really good one, but it's really a a way of getting familiar with Mises's Human Action. So it's sort of a a summer rewrite of of that book rather than an a new introduction to it. So in discussions with Jeff Dice, the president of the Mises Institute, um, we, we sort of agreed that we needed a, a, a primer of Austrian economics that would be cheap, it would be really easy to read for anyone. It wouldn't require sort of a, a, someone with at least a master's degree or something like that, but someone who who maybe, maybe uh, dropped out of high school should be able to understand this because economic literacy is so important and it should be short. So it shouldn't take too much of your time. So easy, short and and cheap. And 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 the goal was to, to write something that was half as long as Hazlitt's uh, classic, uh, written in sort of the same, uh, same type of language. It's easy to understand, it's to the point, it's, not a whole lot of, of words like I mean being an academic I, I know how to use a lot of words to say not a whole lot right <laughs> it's the same, same same skill as politicians have um, uh, and then make it since it can since it is uh, produced by the Mises Institute and since it is so short it should be able to just be very very cheap and and the result is I mean it wasn't easy right but the result is that I actually made it under just a little bit less than than half of the length of Hazlitt's book, uh, and of course they're selling it for five bucks in, in hard copy or free as a PDF or ebook. Right, definitely. I'm a huge fan of the Mises Institute. Uh, the work that they've Me done, too. it's absolutely yeah. incredible. I think a lot of people um, came through from the Ron Paul Revolution, and then they got exposed to like LouRockwell.com, and then from there to Mises and to other organizations. How did you get started with the Mises Institute? That's a very good question, actually. I mean, in a sense, I, I started the PhD program because of the Mises Institute or through the Mises Institute because I, I sent my resume to them or my contact there. Uh, which was Jeff Tucker back in the day, uh, and and said, hey, do any of your affiliated faculty have a, a PhD program where they might be able to take me on? And and the very next day, I think I got an email from Peter Klein saying that, hey, how about Missouri? So so I left pretty much. Um, but how did I get involved with them? And and I think it was through politics. I I started a website because um, I took the I took the plunge from a statist libertarian to anarchist libertarian in 98. 
Um, and then I started a website in 99, anarchism.net. It's still still online, but it hasn't been updated for at least 15 years. But, <laughs> but still, it has, it has content. Um, and I wrote a lot. This was back in the day when I was a systems developer working in business consulting and that sort of thing in Sweden. And I wrote a lot of columns and things like that on anything Liberty, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And LouRockwell.com started and Mises.org was really early too, starting a website. Um, and I, I've written a bunch for LouRockwell.com back in the early day. I don't think I've written anything after 2006 or something. Um, but I had like 25 or 30 pieces for them. Um, and through there, I eventually qualified, I suppose, to writing for Mises.org. And it was Jeff Tucker who, who uh, accepted my piece, one that was on immigration, I think, the first one. Um, and then from there, I mean, I, I always loved their work. Um, but it's one thing just reading the website and buying their books, right? It's, it's another thing to actually do something with them and for them, that sort of thing. But then it's, it, it really, being in, in Sweden, it's re- really hard to show up for events and everything because it's it, it right. costs a lot and it takes a lot of time. <laughs> so that wasn't really possible, but I could write columns for them. And then, of course, since Peter Klein was my advisor, um, being a senior fellow at the Mises Institute, I sort of got a shortcut to go to their events and anything for a student when I was a grad student, I had the opportunity of going. Um, and through there, when I became a faculty member, I, I qualified to be first an associated scholar and then a fellow and now a senior fellow. Fantastic. Yeah, I think the work that they are doing, what you're doing is absolutely fantastic because right now economic literacy, I think, is at an all time low. And I think the respect for entrepreneurship especially is something that's definitely maybe not at the lowest it's ever been in American history, but it's got to be close to it. In your book, you talk a lot about entrepreneurship and how important it is to not only to the economy, but really the future of humankind, because they're the ones who do, in a large extent, design our future. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's that's, that's something that I think is, is super important to understand the economy, yet it's something that is not part of mainstream economics at all. It's it's really sad studying studying mainstream economics. There is no entrepreneur. There's no such thing as entrepreneurship. It's it's all about what I call the, the gang sign of economics, right? This, supply and demand um and like i asked my students okay so this is the economy supply and demand where is the entrepreneur and sometimes i even hold up a marker and i, I tell them here who who wants to put, place the entrepreneur in in this diagram i mean and of course the entrepreneur doesn't exist there because the entrepreneur is already it, it's the entrepreneur is whoever brought it about and the entrepreneur is whoever will sort of disrupt it too after the fact. So this is where there is no entrepreneurship. But for Austrian economists, entrepreneurship is the, that's the driving force of the market process. It's what changes everything. So without entrepreneurship, we can't really talk about anything in the economy, which which is why mainstream economics is so sad. That everything they're talking about is, yeah, I mean, with, with some some tweaks here and there, you can use their models because the economy overall 
works with supply and demand, but where does it come from? What happens when there is a disruptive innovation? Uh, what is value creation? That sort of thing. I mean, our standard of living is not simply stealing value from some other place and therefore we're rich. No, we have created a lot of value. I mean, there's seven or eight billion people today. Most of us live much better lives than people lived in, in the Stone Age. How did that happen? Well, it's 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 not because we we stole value from Africa or whatever some people claim, right? It's, we created this value, and we can't understand where this comes from or how it happens at all unless we consider entrepreneurship. So so it's unless we understand that, it's economics itself is sort of doomed. What is it like on on college campuses today? I've never I went to college for like three classes, and that was about it. Um, but uh, what is it like on campuses today when you're when you have this perspective which is not the mainstream orthodoxy? Well, it's it's not a big issue in in entrepreneurship, which I teach, because in entrepreneurship it's about starting the business, it's about figuring out how to create value, and all of this stuff. So it's it's really about, I mean, what I teach the students is primarily we are thinking, and and the way I, I put it is is usually that well you need to figure out what what will make your customers' life uh, better? How how to make them better in their their own way, right? You, you have to understand their point of view, and if you can figure out how to provide them with something that makes their lives better, then they will be willing to pay a price for it. Your job is simply to figure out, or simply it's not simple, but but it is, it is to figure out how to produce that thing at a cost that is lower than the price you can charge. Right, so, and and that's not really very far from how entrepreneurship is taught generally, because most of the methods and, and and sort of the templates that we teach are all about producing a business plan by placing the customer first and having focus groups or surveys and involving uh, the customer and 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 producing a a a. a a, a minimum viable product and and things like that and prototyping right <clears throat> to make sure that that the customer can give us feedback as soon as possible because otherwise we have a lot of costs and then we get a, a nasty surprise probably when we try to sell it but if we involve the customer soon then 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 we can figure out whether we're at least not on the totally wrong track and this is very austrian Aust entrepreneurship research itself is very austrian simply because it it has to look to the process, not the gang sign, and it has to look at value creation, and the only arbiter of value is the customer, the consumer. So so there there's really no, you can't really use mainstream economics and entrepreneurship, but you can use Austrian economics. Now, do you think that entrepreneurship isn't understood well or taught because such a small fragment of the population actually engages in that type of behavior or they believe that they can't learn how to do that or they prefer not to do that um, as a way to earn their living well i mean a, a very common question i get is is well can you teach entrepreneurship right then i mean the, the answer to that is definitely yes and definitely no at the same time and and, and what i mean by that is that i can't teach anyone how to be a successful entrepreneur and and if I knew how to do that, I would probably not be teaching it. I would probably be doing it and and make a lot of money instead. 
Um, but but there there really is no template or blueprint for for how to become a successful entrepreneur. What what we can teach, however, is to avoid the the common traps and the common problems that entrepreneurs have, like for instance, placing the customer first and involving the customers as soon as possible to get that sort of feedback. I mean, traditionally the the model was, I want to produce something cool that I like, uh, so I just hire people and I get a factory going and and buy all these inputs and sign all these contracts and I produce a ton of these products and then I open a store and then on opening day I go, come on everyone, buy it here. And then you'll figure out that, whoops, people didn't like it. I mean, that's a lot of cost that could have been avoided because you, you didn't even think of the customer. Right? And, and I think very often uh, entrepreneurs still make this mistake that they think in terms of the production process, whereas they should think exactly the opposite. So they should think, okay, how can I serve this type of customer? What type of value can I provide? How, uh, how can I provide it? What would they potentially pay to get this? And then, okay, what type of production process? How do I produce this? Where do I produce this? When do I produce this in order to keep the cost below the price? Right. So you need to think about it completely the opposite way from from how you go about doing it in a sense. That makes sense, definitely. How do you think that the entrepreneurial environment changes when the government becomes one of the largest, if not the largest customer in the marketplace for so many things nowadays, especially with healthcare? Uh, I believe it was $1.7 trillion that the U.S. government transferred from taxpayers, you know, through the the different medical agencies, bureaucracies to different corporations, and they call that a market. I guess it is a coerced market, if you will. But how does that change the entrepreneurial calculation when the consumer is under prohibitions and then there's subsidies on the other side for the entrepreneur? And that that does change what is produced, what is seen and unseen. And I think you added something which is really um, interesting called the unrealized, that when all of this intervention happens, that there is a world that we never get to enjoy of possibilities because of these actions. Right. And I mean, there's a lot in the, your question. So, I mean, sure. to unpack that in, in detail yeah. would, would take uh, a, a lot of podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, you're, you're right that in, in a sense, the, the economic model for Austrians, where how the market works itself, uh, there you have prices that that are determined for consumer goods, are determined by consumers uh, and consumers wanting to buy different things and sort of comparing and contrasting how they can benefit themselves and gain as much as possible for their hard-earned cash, right? Mm-hmm. And the prices for everything else, the costs for entrepreneurs are really set by entrepreneurs themselves. So they're competing, thinking of, like we talked about, the, the value that they can potentially produce for people. And then the price that that they think that customers will be able to pay for this. And then they pick the costs necessary. So they're they're bidding for the the inputs into their business based on the value they think they can produce. So entrepreneurs as a whole, the collective, they're they're producing these prices. Then of course, if the government is the producer or the one to make uh, to place all the orders or or to subsidize some and not others and whatnot else, 
you screw this up so everything will be distorted and then the question is what do you get out of this so in in, in healthcare you're not going to try any new methods because those are not covered by whatever government or bureaucratic rules and 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 subsidies and and price prices and things like that right i mean if you go to go to a doctor uh your doctor will not look you in the eye because he's looking at the computer screen and why because he's entering all of these codes because those codes might be a way for the insurance company your insurance company to actually cover some of these things that he's going to recommend that you do. But you ha he has to find the right code and then the right reason for the code, or you might have to pay it out of pocket, right? So, and of course the, the insurance is paid for by your employer and not by you. So you haven't even shopped around for different insurances. So the, in a sense, the supply and demand where value actually is, is not in motion. It, it's, it's, does not affect anything really in this process, which of course means that we're wasting a lot of resources here. We're right. and, and we're so much poorer as a result. And that leads to your, your question about the unrealized, which is, um, it's the last chapter in, in, in the primer, but it's, it's also from a book that I wrote on that whole concept on, on, on regulation. Um, and the point was simply that, well, you can look at the scene and the unseen like Hazlitt does, um, and very often economists are pretty good at, 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 at looking at this or they're creating a counterfactual. So they say, oh, if you int introduce this higher minimum wage, this will be the effect. If you don't, then this will be the effect and you can compare the two, right? But that's sort of short term and it doesn't look at the cumulative effects. So something was missing in my mind that to an Austrian, the economy is integrated so if you mess with something over here, then that's going to have an effect on everything over here too. And, and one way I explain this to the students is, well, if you start a business and you hire someone who has a job somewhere else, well, you hire that person, but that other business needs to hire someone else because they just lost an employee, right? And, and if they hire someone else, then they probably hire someone who was in another business. So you have these ripple effects throughout the economies. You can't really say that just because you regulate a little bit over here, it's not going to have an effect on anything else. Of course it will. Right. It's going to have an effect on pretty much everything. So the question then is, okay, well, what does this mean for the outcome of the whole thing? So what I do in that book and also in the in the last chapter is, is talk about, okay, the, the long-term effects, because we know that the economy is a process. And we know that it's cumulative. So the because there was an iPod, they could produce the iPhone, right? Because they already had the technology and they built off of what they had already learned and all the capital they had amassed and all this stuff, right? And you have all these innovations building off of what worked before. So we're on a certain path because of all these successes by entrepreneurs. And basically what they have discovered works and what what both in terms of production technologies and things like that, and in terms of products that consumers actually want. So they try to refine those and also try to disrupt those with something that's even better, right? Well, if you regulate and you say, well, you can't do this. Well, whatever entrepreneur wanted to use something that is now prohibited, will have to choose to do something else. Well, that's something else is necessarily of lower value because they would choose to maximize the value they can get out of it, right? So, so they were trying to serve their customer and that was doing something that has whatever to do with what is not prohibited. So they would choose something else, which necessarily will be of expected lower value. 
Well, that also means that they will be bidding for those other resources that someone else would have used. So those resources will be more expensive. <clears throat> they will probably potentially be in someone else's hands than they otherwise would be. So the result there will also be lower, lower value. Well, this means that the whole economy will be burdened by this one regulation and the whole economy will also continue to unfold on a lower trajectory because we have lower value and can produce lower value than we otherwise would have. And the next generation of innovations will build off of that lower value. So we will never catch up. And and this this idea was sort of, it was inspired by a, a really an article at lewrockwell.com, which is sort of interesting how, how that works. But <laughs> and, and I think the title was something like the year 3500 colon, or that's where we would be without the state. And it, it got me thinking that, yeah, where would we be without the, the state and regulations? How far would we have gotten by now if it weren't for regulations? And it's not like we have one or two or 10 regulations. We have thousands and thousands. I mean, there's not a living human being who knows the whole tax code, and that's just part of the regulations, right? So what are the actual effects? If every regulation burdens us, and sets us on a lower trajectory. Well, imagine if we didn't have this stuff. Oh my God, we would not have cancer or heart disease or anything because we would already have found cures for them a couple of hundred years ago. And we would all be taking vacations to, I don't know, one of Jupiter's moons. I mean, there's really no end to what might've been possible. And, and that's the unrealized, this other world that where we could have been, but we're not. I think that's fascinating because I've thought a lot about what would have happened if World War One didn't occur because there was a trajectory of civilization that was going like a hockey stick. It was going straight up with the Victorian era, the Industrial Revolution, and then it, it hit a brick wall. And especially when America got involved and then you had the Russian Revolution. And that really set the stage for the 20th century, which I think will be looked back at history as the, the century of the state, basically, and about how many people you know, unfortunately lost their lives or the potential of their lives because of the intervention of the coercive power of the state. Um, what brought yeah. you from being a status libertarian to one that uh, would think that we'd be better off without a state altogether? Well, that was an, an interesting journey. I mean, I was sort of free market kind of type, like, well, like an American conservative, I guess in mm -hmm. some sense. But then I happened to have a, a libertarian teacher in college. Um, and I, I did a full year in Honolulu in college. The Swedish government paid and, and they, my university wanted me to go abroad and get that experience. And I was, as a serious student, I was like, where could I go for really high quality academic stuff? Well, Honolulu sounds good, <laughs> right? So, so that, that's, that's what, yeah, that's what you get for taxpayer money, right? right. Um, but I happened to get two courses at once with a libertarian in economics, and, and, and he pushed me over the edge to just let go of any type of regulation, really, of the economy and, and see how the economy works itself, uh, and, and really based on Austrian economics, uh, even though he didn't say so. Um, and from there, I, I discovered, I mean, it was pretty obvious, but but that if you want freedom, 
and that is sort of the principle is that everybody has the right, full right to their own life and, and to their own freedom and, and make whatever they wish out of it as long as they don't hurt anybody else. You can't really find space for the state because the state is violence and aggression and coercion. So it's the exact opposite of the principle of freedom. So the question then was where I think where most people end up in, in the, their thinking is that, but how could it work? And the question that most uh, statist libertarians ask is, but how could it work? Or even worse, they would say that it doesn't work. It would just be everybody's war against everybody because they swallow the, the, the Hobbesian lie, sort of. Um, so I, I was searching for an answer and I was sort of with a friend who was in, in the same spot, um, uh, searching for different types of solutions. How could we structure or how could a free society be structured like that uh, without the state? So we drafted all kinds of weird schemes for courts on different levels that would be privately funded and, and whatnot else. But how could we make this guaranteed to last and all, all of those questions that states libertarians always have? And we couldn't figure it out. And of course, the answer is that there is no guarantee. So stop looking for one, right? I mean, the state claims to be a guarantee, but it never is. Um, but what, what pushed me that last little bit um, was really someone recommending David Friedman's The Machinery of Freedom. And it's not a fantastic book, I, I would say now, but it's, I mean, it, it, at the right time, and when you're asking certain question, it has the answers for those questions, right? So mm -hmm. it's, I mean, David Friedman is a utilitarian, so uh, not a, a natural rights-based sort of libertarian like Murray Rothbard or anything like that. But in it, he really, really pedagogically and really, really easily just conveys that, hey, why, why wouldn't police laws and courts be on the market? And reading the book, and I was like, crap, it's that easy. It's that simple. Why didn't I think of this? How stupid am I? That sort of thing, right? Uh, and and from there, but there was really no no turning back. I started reading a lot of of the uh, anarchist literature, uh, both individualist anarchism and agorism, and and, and Rothbard, of course, and and things like that. And and well, I I never looked back because there was no reason to look back because that would mean mean reintroducing force, and I I don't want to do that. Right, definitely. I, I think that a lot of people get to that point in their life when they go down the libertarian track. How far are they willing to go as far as the logical conclusions are? And then a lot of times you back that, you find that place and then you back away from it because of what they feel like, what is the pragmatic thing to do? And so I think that's where a lot of people are today, um, especially with the rise of populism. I follow a lot of populist um on the right, the right populist mostly. And their take is that the state is necessary because you have um, these large aggressive states around the world that if they, if you don't have um, a large state in the United States, then the American people would become prey to the states that are already out there. What would you say to the populists out there, the conservatives who are still uh, not as enamored with the state as they used to be. I think a lot of the lies have been exposed. A lot of people are mm -hmm. doubting um, what the state's purpose truly is. Well, I mean, first thing is simply that stop thinking of it in terms of a guarantee, because it isn't. 
Right. And I think it's getting getting clearer and clearer that the state has its own interest. It doesn't have mm-hmm. your interests at heart. Right. That so so it's 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 really problematic to to believe that lie because it's so false and so blatantly false that it's it's really stupid to believe it. Um and then look around you. It, it's a lot of people are getting along just fine and really productively without any involvement of the state. It's not the case that I don't murder my neighbors because there is a law saying so, right? I I wouldn't do it anyway. So right. the law is not stopping us from becoming animals, all of us. The law, it used to be the case, I mean, in a way that when we adopted laws, it was to get rid of some behaviors by some uh, basically low nuts or or people on the margin who didn't fit in. And how do we deal with them? Because most people get along just fine. So there's a lot of anarchy really in our everyday lives and how we how we deal with people, how we interact with people, even with strangers. I mean, go to the farmer's market and what else? Yeah, whoever whoever wants to could just steal stuff and run away or they could just burn down whatever farmers stand or that doesn't happen. Why not? I mean, if it was truly the case that, we, well, we, we need the state to protect us, then you needed a police officer at every damn farmer's stand in, in the farmer's market. Well, usually there's no one there and it right. works just fine. So so what we're talking about is, is these uh, peculiar particular cases on the margin. How do we deal with those? And there's no reason why we wouldn't be able to get together and, and deal with those without necessarily institutionalizing aggression. That doesn't make any sense at all to, to go, go to that level, right? So I think dealing with, with that illusion that people have is, is number one. And then when you realize that it is a, an illusion or it could be an illusion, that's, that's all it takes. Read about it because there, there are plenty of really good um, books, both fiction and and nonfiction, there are essays and whatnot else that you can read that that will people who are drafting how it would work and and theorizing on how it would work and things like that and, and different ideas too. And what's so beautiful with anarchism is that, well, you can make it happen. You can get together with your friends and you can put together whatever system you like, right? And you can get a bunch of property somewhere, and you and some friends can set up a community and you can live in whatever way you feel like on that property. And do you have to defend yourselves? Yeah, maybe, um, but there's no need for such a thing as a national defense. That's sort of a, a I think that's a, a, a big problem is that that is used as an argument. And I've claimed, well, probably for 20, 20 years now, that the problem with national defense, it's not the word defense, it's the word national. And what I mean by that is that, well, yeah, of course you need to defend yourself, but you don't need to defend the country because you can take over a country easily if you have a hierarchy with like one guy at the top who decides everything and then everybody else just falls in line in the hierarchy. Well, then you take out that guy and replace him with your own guy and then you have the whole country, right? But but instead, if you didn't have that hierarchy, if you didn't have that kind of society and every everyone or every community was... Uh, defending itself, well, how would you take over and occupy America? Well, you need to you need to take over every damn house there is, 
And how do you do that? I mean, it's basically impossible. That's, I mean, it's basically the Swiss model, right, of defense, that mm -hmm. everybody's supposed to have a gun at home. And I, I'm not in favor of forcing everyone to have a gun, but, <laughs> but, I mean, if you have to take over every damn house on every street, there's no way you can do that. And and suddenly having fighter jets and and tanks and whatnot else, they're not very useful if you have to take over every damn house. So. This this whole idea that national defense and everything like that needs to be centralized and national and like a super large scale, I think that's just a lie. It's an illusion. We we tend to think about it in in those terms, but it's something that we have inherited from the days of kings, and the kings they saw the country as their own property and they wanted to expand their property and that meant they had to defeat this other king who had his property the, the adjacent property. Right, and then they were just using everybody as pawns, and then of course the 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 more they could, the closer they could get to the king's castle and and break big holes in it, the easier it was to defeat that guy. Right, what 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 it took was to get that guy to admit defeat, and then you could get a bunch of his his property. That's not really how it works in in a world where where we don't have those kings, and especially in an anarchy with with there's no state, there's no such hierarchy, then there, there's simply no way of of taking over anything. And national defense is easy, easy to defeat in the sense that we have centralized bases, right? And there we have all these fighter jets and we have all these tanks and everything is just lined up and all the soldiers are there, right? And then if you think about it, well, then one bomb here, poof, one bomb here, poof, those bases are gone. There's no defense. Well, that's not that hard, right? Logically speaking, it's not difficult to defeat such a defense because they've already lined everything up and said, "Hey, if you bomb here and bomb here, then you're then you're done, right?" Because that's that's everything we got. You say, "Well, sorry, we don't have any bases, but well, people might have guns and they might even have tanks or whatever else in their in their homes." Private well, tanks, private ownership of tanks, yeah. right? Why not? And then. But then how do you take over that? You can take over someone's own property, their yard or whatever, but that's going to be very costly to take over someone's yard who might have a gun. So I I don't see that it's even a, a question. Right, definitely. And I think your book, um, How to Think About the Economy, is very important because when we talk about self-defense, I think self-defense does encompass much more than what the limited political debate is currently about with the Second Amendment, that it actually does extend to uh, production and exchange and consumption. And that self-defense is actually, um, that's why I believe the with the Bill of Rights is so uh, brilliant is because religion was the number one thing that they prohibited the state from interfering with, because that's basically the individual's ability to, to value the world around them and themselves and to see the world and determine what and how that they live their life. And I think that your book talks about there's really only two ways to get what you want in life, right? You can take it or you can trade. And I think that trade is one of the best ways to to encourage peace around the world. So self-defense in the traditional sense is not as much needed. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, production is how we get better and how we improve our own lives and other everybody else's lives too. And and the market is who how we can make trade and and production possible because it means I can focus on producing what I'm really good at producing whether or not I want to have what I produce.
because I can just do whatever I'm good at so I can produce a lot and then I can trade it with others and get whatever they produce but that I want more. And that's of course also how we learn from each other and that's how society is built in a sense too because we understand each other much better by trying to serve one another. And that's what you wrote in your book is that um, it is an empathetic process when you do serve other people because you have to at least uh, minimally know how they feel about about what they want, what their needs are. And so the idea of treating others how you want to be treated, the golden rule, um, in Robert Heinlein's the, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress, the the professor he talks about, he thinks there only should be one law, and that should be the golden rule, you know, when they talk about uh, the revolution on, on the moon. But I think that's uh, definitely the basis for um, a more peaceful society is when you are engaged in trade, you're trying to figure out what the other person wants. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was Bastian who said that where goods don't cross borders, soldiers will. Right. And people want to trade. And there's a good reason for that, because we trade because we want what the other has more than what we offer in return and vice versa. So we're both better off trading. So just the idea of regulating or stopping trade, whether or not we're from different countries or different neighborhoods, that doesn't make any sense at all, because trade happens because both parties want to do it. And they both expect to be better off from it. That's nobody else's business, really. And in the book, you talk about value and how customers are the consumers, the one who determines value. Can you talk briefly about that? Because um, I know we're getting up against time here, but I think that's a very important part that when we have these discussions about politics and economics, the consumer is often lost and not even in the discussion. And value itself is not even lo is, is lost as well because price and cost are talked about uh, instead of value. And I think that in your book, you do a great job of talking about the differences in those. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, value is, is what's most important. The, the only reason we engage in anything economic is really because we want as much value out of it as possible. And value is re really just getting some kind of personal satisfaction. That, that's all there is to it. And looking at the economy, we don't need to understand why and what people value and what will make them better off. All we need to know is that they know it. Mm -hmm. They have some kind of idea of what will make them better off and they act in order to attain it. So they produce something because they want to eat it or because they make it makes them more comfortable or whatever it is, or they produce something in order to trade it with someone else so that they can get something that they really want and that, that makes them better off. And, and that gives rise to the whole economy and the prices and, and, and companies and all of this stuff that, that we see every day, right? But it really all is about the production of things that can make us better off. So it is, it's about the, simply because we're not fully content, but there's always some, Mises calls it uneasiness that we're feeling. And the whole reason we're acting is because we think we want to, we can become better off by doing this particular action and very and that always requires some kind of means and well, I mean I love this planet but it does not provide us with a whole lot of very good means it provides us with a lot of stuff but a lot of stuff can be improved I mean nature's own iPhone is not very good right? It, <laughs> right. it doesn't exist at all but we can produce those things by by using different materials and using human ingenuity and trade and, and, and learning from each other and things like that. And we can make the world much, much better for ourselves. And therefore we can make people's lives less uneasy by providing them with these goods and services. 
And I, I think that's that's just a beautiful thing, and there are no contradictions in it at all. Um, but you have to realize that that value is just a personal thing, and that gives rise to the price that people are willing to pay in terms of money or in terms of whatever it is that they're selling in, in return or, or using in exchange. And then you're, we need to keep the cost beno- uh, underneath or believe below the price to not waste resources. And it's and it's if people are really concerned about quote unquote sustainability or justice or um, helping the people who need it the most, I believe the market and with uh, the consumer driving the market and entrepreneurs being free to to meet the demands of those consumers, that it is the most just and efficient way to turn what is given to us in nature into something that can meet more and more of our needs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in, in the market, how, how do you serve yourself best? Well, by serving others to the to the greatest extent possible. And in, in that sort of, like I said, there, there's, there are no contradictions in there. And, and it works beautifully. And we also learn from each other. And frank, frankly, the more you learn about people you have the potential of serving, the better are your odds that you can actually serve them and become rich in the process. And they're not made worse because you're made rich. No, you are right. rich because you serve them so well, much better than anybody else. So it's there's really not a problem here. The problem is is it's introduced when the consumer is no longer king, when production is not no longer about satisfying your consumers or your customers, but serving someone else, a third party somewhere. And that third party is a lot of times the government or their political uh, favorites, that they're able to actually conscript your consumption. They're able to use the force of government to force you to buy stuff that you normally wouldn't buy. And we've seen that in the last few years, definitely with uh, the the quote unquote vaccines that people have been forced to buy. Because when you go to the store or at the CVS or the grocery store, they say free that it's free for you. Is it truly free, those shots? Yeah, of course not. I mean, they, they take resources uh, and, of course, they take time and and what else on, on your part, too. But, you know, someone paid for them. Someone spent a lot of time developing them. Someone produced them. Of course, they could have produced something else and something that consumers were actually wanting. And, I mean, it could be the case. I mean, many people obviously wanted these vaccines, too. But they could have been produced in a market-based fashion, meaning that they every step along the way they would have been produced, always thinking about, okay, can we make more out of these resources? Can we serve people in general better? And that's how market production is undertaken. This was not market production because the government sponsored and, and subsidized the, the development and then paid for the whole thing for everyone. And that, of course, skews production quite a bit and we a lot of resources were put into producing these things instead of producing whatever it is that consumers might have gotten instead so we're on a lower trajectory again i think that's a great point that you point out a lower trajectory i think people can feel that in their bones that america in the last few years has gone down to a lower trajectory especially when you go to the grocery store or go to fill up your tank before we let you go here pair can you talk a little bit about inflation and what is inflation and how that does impact the average american sure so 
there, this is a little bit tricky because inflation nowadays is defined as higher prices in consumer items. Mm -hmm. uh, and even worse, it's, it's defined as higher price level. And whoever has gone to a grocery store knows that no goods have prices, but there's no price level in the store. Well, what does that even mean? Right. Well, that's a, a statistical construct trying to figure out what prices are like in general in the economy, uh, which doesn't make any sense at all. But assuming that there is such a thing, they're sort of measuring how much it goes up or goes down. And whenever it goes up, it's inflation. The problem is that it's it's really more instructive thinking about it the other way around. Not that goods and services become more expensive, but that your money buys less. Hmm. And that's the original definition of it. It was that, well, you're creating a lot of new money that was not there before. So prices will adjust to all this new money bidding for the same goods that existed before because you don't produce new go new goods out of thin air just like you produce money. Right. So so the, there's more money bidding for the same number of goods, so prices go up. So inflation used to be this monetary phenomenon that, that oh, there's just a whole lot of more money around. Um, and if you think about it as a monetary phenomenon, and how your money buys less, it's much easier to shield yourself and 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 sort of figure out how to, well, how how to how to keep your money, right? Because this money is losing value, then what do you do? It's not the case that you shouldn't buy stuff because stuff is more expensive than before. Rather, you shouldn't keep the money in your wallet because it's the money losing value. Of course, the goods themselves they have a, as much value as before, and I mean. Of course, we, we know this, any piece of meat or whatever, it will satisfy you as much as it did before. Mm -hmm. There's no difference there. But the money that it, it, it takes to buy that piece of meat, well, suddenly there's a lot more. Okay, so how am I going to get all that money? Because your job doesn't pay more. But so, so you get less satisfaction for all that hard-earned cash because that cash is worth less which means you are paid less in terms of the goods and services you can buy from it, right? So uh, in, inflation is really a, a since, since uh, money is controlled by the government and, and the Federal Reserve and central banks and, and the whole banking system, really, mm -hmm. um, it's really a way of taxing us indirectly. So um, instead of, and, and, and it originally was really intended to be this way too, that it, it would be hard to, uh, lower people's salaries because people don't want lower salaries. So, but it's easier then to let them keep the salaries in terms of the number of dollars, and, but then instead lower the value of each dollar, right? Because people would complain right. less. Uh, so, so it's sort of a scheme in in that sense. Um, and of course, it's also the the fact that whoever prints those dollars and gets to buy stuff first. They get to use all this new, newly minted or newly counterfeited uh, cash to buy things before prices have adjusted, right? So, so whoever is controlling the the money printing uh, process can enrich themselves, which is usually the banking system or the government. Um, and whoever gets gets a, a raise last, they will buy things at the new higher prices before they get the raise. Mm -hmm. So it's really a redistribution of wealth from those with the the least flexible salaries, which is usually people who are on, say, a, a, 
a pension or fixed income of some sort, because <clears throat> it will not be adjusted until very late in the process. They will have to pay higher prices for the same goods with the, with the same not raised uh, income, whereas the government can buy a lot of things with their new money um, and get, so it's a redistribution from typically poor people to the government, but it, it doesn't have to be. It just, it's just that whoever uses it first uh, enriches themselves and, and, and they get rich and whoever uses them last in a sense, they, they, they get poorer. So in, inflation is this really nasty phenomenon that is a manipulation of the money really. Do you think there is a solution besides abolishing the Federal Reserve for keeping inflation in check with the current trajectory of government spending with the so-called entitlements and the, the attitude with modern monetary theory that it doesn't really matter that they can print as much as they want? What do you think are the solutions? Are there any alternatives with competing currencies out there, or are there other solutions that we've not seen yet, do you think, that will come online as the purchasing power of the dollar begins to recede even more rapidly? Well, I mean, there, there are plenty of complexities involved here. <laughs> so it's, it's not easy, and it's really the world is an integrated banking system too. So right. the, <clears throat> the dollar being the, the only remaining world currency, uh, means that we can exploit it quite a bit and America can enrich itself uh, at the expense of everybody else, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but do you have to abolish the Fed? I mean, it would certainly help. Um, <laughs> but you don't have to necessarily abolish it. You can also just allow other currencies. So uh, I think Hayek wrote, wrote a piece on that, on the denationalization of money, saying that, well, okay, government can have its currency just stop with the legal tender thing. Um, don't force everyone to use it. Instead, let people use whatever currency they like. And then they would choose gold or Bitcoin or euros or whatever the heck they want. <clears throat> and then you, you would see uh, see what would be the real money because that's what people would tend to use. I think that's that's going to happen eventually. I think it's already happening now. I'm not sure if you follow cryptocurrency or not, but I think it's still I think it's still viable if it's not been captured by the same banking cabal, if you will. Uh, but I think there's always going to be an entrepreneurial out, an output or out, an outweigh, if you will, that entrepreneurs always find a way out. That when it looks the bleakest, when it looks the darkest, there's people who've been working on solutions, you know, for 10, 20 years that are just waiting to see the light of day. So I really appreciate you coming on today. Per Byland in your book, How to Think About the Economy, it's fantastic. I think everybody who's looking to improve their economic literacy and also just to have a better outlook about themselves and how they act, how they think, and how they um, can serve others better. Because if you serve others better, you can serve yourself better as well. So do you have any parting thoughts, what you'd like to leave the audience with before we go? No, I think you put it really well yourself. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really proud of that book and and, and how it's taking off too. Um, the people are really appreciating it, which uh, means I have served them well. Let's hope it serves me too. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I really enjoyed the book, and I hope everybody out there goes out and buys it. So hang around for just a minute. We're gonna um, say goodbye to the audience, and then we'll close out um, just you and me. So thanks for being here, and thanks for listening to the Chronically Human podcast. It's been Pear Byland in his book, 
how to think about the economy, you can get it at Amazon.com or Mises.org, or you can get the PDF on Mises.org as well. I highly recommend it, and I think you should give it as Christmas presents, birthday presents to all the people in your life. Get kids started early, too. I think that kids can understand the book, and and the earlier kids understand, I think kids want to understand money because they talk about money all the time. They want to know how to learn it. I think this is a great book for kids to start on that as well. So thanks again, and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Chronically Human podcast. You can continue the conversation with us at chronicallyhuman.locals.com.